Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest was a Bet the Company civil trial lawyer, a partner in big law, founded his own national litigation boutique firm, and was the outside general counsel to three insurance companies. An early mover on legal tech and legal process outsourcing, today he is the co-founder of a company that combines the law firm and legal service provider models into a single organization. The CEO of Legal Mosaic and chair of the advisory board and chief strategy officer at Elevate Legal Services. Mark Cohen, welcome to Left Foot. Pleasure to be here, Nicole. Thanks. Great to have you as a guest in our program, Mark. We're going to jump right into our questions. The first one is to really communicate to our audience, which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful developing business as a lawyer and as a business professional? Well, I think that there's no one size that fits all. So for me, it was, I think, a combination of being relentless, being authentic, being persuasive, and trying to relate to people as people and being able to tell stories. If you could elaborate for our listeners around telling stories, what did that look like in practice? Let me answer your question from the prism of a trial lawyer, which is what I was principally as a practicing lawyer. And trial work is really about two things as I see it. One is the ability to persuade people. And as an element or tool of persuasion, it's the ability to tell stories and to relate complex factual and legal matters into a way that people can readily understand not so much necessarily through the lens of a lawyer, but rather relating the story of the case to people in a way that resonates. And I think that storytelling, believe it or not, also can come into play in terms of even motion practice, being able to put things into a context that a judge is going to readily see and appreciate and to frame issues both to adversaries, to clients in a way that is both credible and persuasive. So in that sense, I think that the ability to tell stories permeates all the different sub-relationships that a lawyer, any lawyer, and particularly trial lawyers have in his or her practice. That's a great response. And I think that idea of stories to assist in understanding, you know, it's interesting. I do believe that we do that in our day-to-day lives. We communicate examples. We use examples as a way to help someone else understand a process or to gain empathy or to really just, you know, develop that person-to-person relationship. So somewhat of a loaded question, how would that approach be different in today's world with all the technology and the idea that we should be concise in our electronic communications? And, you know, how is storytelling part of that approach today? 
Well, I think if anything, Nicole, my view is that there are three types of intelligence active in today's legal marketplace. The first is IQ. And most lawyers have a reasonably high IQ and others in the legal marketplace as well. And then there is, I think, a second type of human intelligence, which is really critically important, and that is EQ, emotional quotient, also known as people skills. I think that paradoxically, as technology becomes more pervasive in the delivery of legal services, it places an even higher premium on EQ. That is to say that one of the things that really separates lawyers from machines is empathy, storytelling, and the ability to relate to people as human being to human being. And then the third type of intelligence at work today is artificial intelligence. And my friends who are very expert in the field tell me, well, two things. One is that artificial intelligence is still a pretty long ways uh, from you know being able to come close to matching the people skills of human beings. And the second is that most people use the term very loosely and most of the time describe artificial intelligence as something that it is not. Interesting point. So, and I have to say, when I think of artificial intelligence, and we'll go back to the EQ as well, but when I think of artificial intelligence to me as someone who's worked in outsourcing, I think of it as big data on steroids, big data and the ability to use that data and analyze that data at a speed that a human couldn't analyze it. And the result is some decision. But that is my layperson's definition of it. But what I'm trying to communicate, Mark, is I don't expect that it will be replacing humans that quickly. Well, I I wouldn't hold myself out, Nicole, as in any way an AI expert. But I would say that from what I've read and heard, yours is a very good functional definition. And I would agree with your conclusion that it's not going to be replacing human beings anytime soon. One of the cores of being a lawyer is an ability to have a kind of a differentiated judgment and to be able to apply expertise and experience to render meaningful judgments. That doesn't mean, of course, that your judgments are always going to be correct. It doesn't mean that you can offer any guarantees as a result of your rendering judgment, but it does mean that clients today are still prepared to pay a premium for a lawyer who has perceived to have really good judgment. And that would be this scenario of they have a success rate that's high and therefore that translates into a very strong judgment and the ability to get a, a strong result. Is that a correct interpretation of that? Well, I think that up until recently, the you know law, it, it's really interesting because as a former trial lawyer, my world was all about meeting your burden of proof and admissible evidence that's you know persuasive material all those kinds of elements but i think from a client's perspective and i've also been a large scale consumer of legal services i find that many decisions as to you know which lawyer to retain 
etc., are very often made by very, you know, sort of fuzzy, non-quantitative criteria, you know, ranging from pedigree, what school they went to, what firm they went to, what their rank within the firm is, as opposed to actual quantifiable results. And as a lifelong baseball fan, I find it peculiarly ironic that baseball is now in well into its second generation of kind of quantitative analysis or big data. And law is barely into its first. Besides the fact that we know, of course, our operations, legal operations professionals and others purchasing legal purchasing agents are really trying to look at more of that data. Do you feel that the industry is starting, especially firms are starting to really say we need to do a better job of communicating both outcomes, potential outcomes, communicating more examples of prior success in a quantitative way, meaning that they'll state, you know, the approximate time it took. I guess what I'm trying to say, Mark, do you think outcomes as a leading with outcomes and potential outcomes to be awarded a legal matter will be the wave of the future? Or do you think it's we're far from that? I think that we are fast approaching that. And I would choose to respond to your question from the client's perspective rather than the law firm's perspective. I think sophisticated legal buyers today are beginning to look very seriously at data as a criterion for selection and for continued use of a particular lawyer or firm. I think that part of the problem and part of one of the many explanations for why there has been a migration of work away from law firms is because law firms have been kind of slow to, I think, respond to that a client desire for proactively putting forth data as to how they might be differentiated from other lawyers or other firms. So I think that as in so much of the change going on in the industry, it's not being driven by the proactive conduct of law firms so much as it is about the increased insistence on the part of legal consumers for change. We do hear from our in-house counsel that we talk to that you know they are looking for efficiency. They are looking for value. They're actually willing to pay higher fees for lawyers who can resolve issues for them succinctly. But And of course, though, your point about how you would offer a differentiated model and combination of services, let's say it that way, to the market so that clients would come to you. I would think even the structure of a, a firm that takes advantage of legal service providers that does use technology effectively, that has a model that is a more modern leveraged model would appear to be a a differentiated offering to most organizations. Might be a differentiator for a moment, right? It might be a relative differentiator. Won't be unique for the long haul because possibly the only firms that will survive are those that actually embrace all of those things. Well, let's put it this way. And I would agree with you that I think that it is going to be systemic very soon that, you know, the delivery of legal services is going to have to have technology and process as a part of it. But I think what we're kind of coming into here in the conversation, Nicole, is what I would call a distinction between legal practice. And by that, I mean those differentiated 
skills, knowledge, and judgment that I had adverted to earlier. That's really the core of what lawyers do, as opposed to the delivery of legal services, which is the business of law, you know, legal operations. But, you know, it's really more than just legal operations. It really, you know, if you look, for example, at Clock's website, they talk about 12 different interconnected disciplines that comprise legal operations. You know, these are things that are very, very different from the traditional, you know, kind of very labor intensive, all work conducted by lawyers kind of approach. This is a sea change. And this is something I think that really is going to the heart of what's going on in the marketplace is that law is no longer simply and exclusively about lawyers and legal practice is, you know, sort of beginning to shrink a bit and the delivery of legal services is expanding. And as a result, I think you're going to see a number of firms that are going to have to do two things. They're either going to have, well, the first thing is what we just talked about. They're going to have to, you know, have that business of law capability, either internally or through uh, collaboration with law companies that specialize in it. And the days of, you know, law firms being all things to all clients, or as I'm fond of saying, big box stores are over. And increasingly, clients are looking to firms not to do everything, but to do, you know, those things that they really excel at in a differentiated kind of a way. So long-winded way of saying, Nicole, that I think you really need to have both the delivery capability as well as the differentiated practice capability to be competitive in the market as it exists, but certainly even more so as it is clearly coming down the pike. A strong and needed distinction around the differences between the legal practice and the legal services space. I was reviewing an episode that we recorded where a general counsel actually said that quality is important, but high quality is not always necessary, that you don't have to overpay for some of the work. There's quality that's appropriate for the matter at hand and for the activity. The highest quality is not needed. Part of this goes to traditional legal culture where lawyers are trained that they should leave no stone unturned. Every single memo has got to be, you know, sort of the most perfect memo they could possibly construct, that there is no differentiation as to what the value of a particular task might be to the overall result of the matter or to, you know, what the client's objectives are. And I think that in the business world, clearly everything has a value. And sometimes good is plenty good enough. And whereas up until relatively recently, lawyers were the ones who decided, you know, sort of what was a legal task, what wasn't a legal task, how much time to allocate to a particular task, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now clients are increasingly driving that discussion and that decision-making process. 
And clients are saying, look, you know, not everything has to be the Magna Carta. Not everything, you know, has to be the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Sometimes it's good enough just to have a decorative piece of art. What you're really beginning to see is a collision, really, between business culture and standard operating procedure and traditional legal culture. You know, since the business people are the ones who are paying for the legal services, I'll give you two guesses who's going to prevail. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact that they're tightening up their selection process, they're tightening up how they're expecting to receive data so that they can report back to their stakeholders. They're actually now expecting that budgets will be adhered to, which I think is a whole nother move, right? Because budget just inherent in the term budget is, you know, there is a limit, right? There is a budget to it. So I think, you know, so much is changing. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. I really would love to give you the opportunity to look back in your history and talk about an opportunity, a success story of where you were able to acquire a piece of business or a case that you just didn't think you were going to have success in having the opportunity to work on it. Is there a distinct story, a success story in your history that you could convey to our listeners? Sure. I'll give you two quick stories, actually. So the first one was I had been doing a tremendous amount of work for a very, very large multinational oil company, a company that just about 15 years ago merged with Exxon. It was mobile. And I asked the general counsel, it was a very significant matter. And I asked the general counsel if he would be willing to come with me to the board, because this was a matter that the board was monitoring quite closely. And basically, it was at the very early stages of the matter. And I made a presentation to the board, and I was interrupted after about 10 minutes by a Texan who said with his best Texas drawl, wait a minute, I thought you said that Mark here was a trial lawyer. I don't believe that. He sounds too much like a businessman to me. Which, of course, I knew, you know, that I had made my point. And what I had basically done was laid out the case for why mobile should not spend the next three or four years paying my firm 15 or so million dollars to defend this case and why I thought it would be much better if we just had a principle to principle negotiated settlement of the case, which is what ended up happening. And yes, I probably, quote unquote, lost 
somewhere in the order of 14 million, maybe 14 and three quarter million dollars of revenue on that particular case. Let's just say that every time Mobile ever had a significant matter after that, I was their lawyer. So that would be one story. And another story is that I was an outside general counsel to a large insurance company. Their CEO was an actuary. I was meeting with him one day and he was, you know, complaining about how their outside legal spend was killing them. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. Direct your general counsel to give me the dozen or so biggest, nastiest, most expensive cases that you've got. Let me look at them and let me see if I can do something about it. I remember I was with someone from my firm and we literally wheeled boxes and boxes and boxes of bankers boxes onto uh, what was then the Metroliner from Wilmington, Delaware to our DC office. And within 90 days, we sort of scoped these cases out. And the next thing you know, for the next five years, my firm was working on an enormous portfolio of cases that we handled on a fixed price basis and where we were able to share you know, both defense costs and reserve on liability exposure. It was basically, I made a business decision that I would completely align my interests with the interests of the client. And it worked out very well for both of us. In both cases, you aligned your interests with those of the client. And I think instead of your firms or your own growth, which in the end, of course, paid off. Let's talk about the risk of that second scenario. Were there instances during that particular five years where you went back to the client and said, you know, this particular case was we estimated would have this result. It's, you know, we're really going to have to make a decision together whether we should go this direction or that. And, you know, in that case, was there an opportunity if they picked the direction that would involve much more time? Was there an op- Did you have an opportunity to, quote unquote, renegotiate that one matter? That is a really terrific question. The answer is, I think that if one is to enter into that kind of a relationship, first of all, you've got to have mutual trust. Second of all, you've got to, you know, sort of enter it that, you know, either we both win or we both lose, but it's not, you know, I'm going to win and you're going to lose. We became, you know, sort of Siamese twins in terms of, you know, the outcome of this. It was either going to be good for both or bad for both. And so, yes, we had a couple of instances where, you know, we sat down and we met and we, you know, kind of engaged. I remember in one particular case, this is some years ago, but I remember we we engaged in a rather spirited dialogue on which way to go. But ultimately, it was a business decision. It wasn't so much as the client trying to second guess me or, you know, in any way questioning my desire, you know, to sort of, in a way, cut corners. I think that's one of the urban myths that lawyers perpetuate, you know, to say that you can't really have fixed price budgeting, particularly with litigation. And years later, when I co-founded ClearSpire, we did all manner of cases, including litigation matters, on a very transparent fixed price basis. And I can tell you that in 98.5% of the time, we were within budget. So 
I believe that it can be done. And I keep going back to, you know, sort of how people are rewarded. If you wanted a real life example of how lawyers can and do operate very much as business people, consider plaintiffs class action lawyers who don't get paid unless, you know, they get a positive result, who have to invest typically millions of dollars into matters. And some skeptics would say, well, yes, but very often they sell out the interests of their clients. That may be on occasion, but do recognize that but for the contingency arrangements that they enter into, their clients would have virtually no recourse whatsoever. And I, at the end of my you know, sort of practice career, having been on defending large multinationals, on these kinds of cases. I picked a couple of cases where at the insistence of the plaintiffs, what I call club, they asked me to come on the other side and I picked uh, two industries that I had not been particularly involved with. And I can tell you that working with these lawyers was pretty much like attending a board meeting at a private equity company. Every single move had to be accounted for. There were no frolics and detours. And everything that the lawyers did was done, you know, in a very, very businesslike kind of a way. So I use that as an example of how lawyers can and sometimes do operate more as business people than just, you know, sort of traditional firm lawyers. Really looking and practicing and acting in a way that is more business oriented, tracking and noting and and ensuring that they are representing their client, having that solid business practice, that efficiency. Your advice to new partners starting on their business development journey. One question that I find really surprising that so few lawyers seem to ask is, what is your objective? That was always the first question I would ask every single client. Very often, you know, I'd get a class action, a huge class action that was assigned to me by a big company. My first question was still, what is your objective? It wasn't just to, you know, frantically get in as many lawyers as I could, you know, to do everything. I really needed to know what the client wanted to do here and how they viewed a successful result, because obviously that was going to color my strategy. So that's just a practice point that I'm really surprised it doesn't seem to be widely practiced. Thank you for sharing some real passion on this podcast. What do you enjoy most about the work that you're doing today? Having just gotten my Medicare card, I am very, very humbled and grateful that I can be relevant. I'm very happy that I work because I want to work. And I'll tell you a very personal story that I'll share with you and whoever is listening in. When I was a practicing lawyer and I was making pretty crazy money and doing really interesting things, I really loved trying cases. I you know, developed strong relationships with several of my clients. But I never really had a passion for the profession. I, you know, kind of thought to myself, well, you know, maybe I would have been better off being a neurologist or a Hollywood screenwriter or something like that. And it's only recently that I've really developed a passion for the profession. Maybe it was when I started teaching at Georgetown a few years ago. Maybe it's because, you know, I dared to really fundamentally change legal delivery 
first with, you know, my boutique firm and then with Clearspire. And I didn't succeed commercially with Clearspire the way I wanted to or many had expected us to. And so it was very humbling. And I decided that, you know, something I'm going to sort of measure my success by a different set of metrics. So I'm very happy, you know, to be doing what I'm doing today and to be able to leverage the experiences that I've had over 40 years in the industry and to perhaps apply it in some sort of a constructive way that might, you know, help others going forward. That's very gratifying. No, I can imagine and that idea, you know, the industry needs a voice that's willing to say what needs to be said. That's a lot of what you're doing based on what I'm reading and what I've had the opportunity to see of your work. Mark, I so appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? I think that this is a terrific time to be going into the legal industry, whether you are a young lawyer or whether you are a technologist or a business person or even an entrepreneur, I think that it's very exciting because, you know, a lot of people write about the gloom and doom of the industry, but I see some very positive developments. I see, for example, the emergence of a global community within the law that certainly did not exist before. I see a tremendous interest in resolving some of law's wicked problems. First and foremost among them, I would consider the access to justice crisis. I see that legal culture, which has been so static and insular and non-diverse, is now beginning to change. I think these are all very positive things. And I think that there are limitless possibilities in the legal industry for people who are both informed and qualified. And I think for that reason, I tend to take a very optimistic view of the future of the profession. Fantastic last point. Mark, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Nicole, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.